Ah, here we go again. Another compliance training. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today to talk oh, about fiscal compliance so in the new year. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me once again for another episode of DIY Narrator. This episode is a little bit different than usual because I was talking with Neil Zielsdorf on LinkedIn about his new setup and we're talking about microphones and sound and podcast formats and stuff. And he said, you know, you got to do like a consultation type of episode where you talk to someone about the stuff that they're trying to overcome and give them some advice on you know what they can do to maybe treat a room or microphones or whatever. And he just so happened to be working on his new house's studio. And I was like, would you be interested in jumping on a call? And within eh, 12 hours or so, we were on a call. We were on the call the next morning. So it's a little bit impromptu. I edited out the, the slow bits, though, where we were kind of capturing and recalibrating ourselves. But it's an interesting conversation about Neil's plans for his new space, some acoustic treatment ideas, a quick primer on sound reflection, sound diffusion, bass traps, acoustic foam, moving blankets, ways you can overcome echo, basically. We'll talk about overcoming household noise, recording sound for videos, and uh, then we had a little conversation about VR and AR and how voiceover fits into that and how that fits into e-learning. That was kind of unexpected, but uh, it was it was interesting and maybe it'll spin off a future episode as well. That said, I'll keep you no longer. Here is my conversation with Neil Zielsdorf. Hey, Neil. How's it going today? Pretty good yourself, Josh? Good, man. Everyone out there listening, this is uh, Neil Zielsdorf. Neil, will you take a second to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name's Neil, as Josh mentioned, and I'm an instructional designer for Amazon based out of Seattle. I've been doing instructional design and voiceover for the past couple of years now, but I'm still pretty much an amateur. Just so everyone knows, Neil has been a good friend of the podcast, uh, DIY Narrator, for the last, oh, we've been doing it for a year now. I don't remember when you reached out the first time, but we've talked on and off for most of the time that I've been producing DIY Narrator. I think I reached out after episode two. It was early. I remember that because you reached out and uh, we just started a nice conversation about all things and you've inspired a few episodes with some of the questions you've asked. And so thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. The reason Neil's on the podcast today is to talk a little bit about the setup he's envisioning in his mind. He recently moved and in his new house, he's got his new room set up and he's trying to figure out, all right, how am I going to make this sound good and serve the purposes that he has for that space? So Neil, could you describe a little bit about what you're planning on doing with the with the space? Because I know it's more than just recording voice for e-learning. Since I kind of am a one-man show for instructional design in my team, I need to do a bit of voiceover. I need, of course, space to do my usual e-learning stuff, but I also need to be able to film. So I need to have enough space in my room to um, set up my camera, have a green screen so I can cut out you know, my video and put it on different backgrounds and stuff. And so because of that, building a sound booth in my space really isn't all that feasible. I have a standard house bedroom for my office, uh, rectangular, and I've got a window on one wall and I've got a closet on the other. So the space is kind of interesting to try and treat. That would be tough because you've got, first of all, the square or the rectangle is never really that great because you get too many like easy reflections. 
But that closet, is it a big walk-in closet or is it just a smaller? Yeah, I wish it was a walk-in closet. I just treat that and turn it to a sound booth. But it's that standard double wide, shallow closet. Yeah, you can barely um, get your shoulders in there. Pretty much, yeah. And it's already full of other supplies and storage stuff. So it's not really a space that I can pull in and use very well. You're going to do film stuff too, you said. So that green screen, do you have the screen already? Yeah. Is it like on a frame that's mounted? I actually have a pop-up green screen. So you know those um, different toys and stuff that you get that have the metal frame on the inside that you have to twist down to a circle? Yep. I have one of those, but it's a green screen. It's about seven feet by four feet. Uh, very terrible side story. They, they also make those into Frisbees that you kind of twist down and they're like a little Frisbee and they pop open. And yeah. one day at work, we got a bunch of those back when I worked in a call center and we were throwing them around. You'd fold them up and throw them at someone and they pop open and then they'd Frisbee their way over to them. I folded one up and I was like, hey, Becky, my wife. And I tossed it at her and smoked her right in the face with it because it didn't pop open like it was supposed to. And oh, she no. still she still gives me crap for that. All right. Oh, man. I used to have one of those Frisbees. So yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it didn't go as planned. She was she still uh, she still makes fun of me for that. That <laughs> what popped into my head when I was thinking about that green screen. Well, that's nice that you can store that green screen down. Yeah, because that gives you a little bit more space. And yeah, booth is totally out of the question. If you've got a need, as I know, I've got a typical, basically the same setup room with a closet and a window, but yeah, I put a four by four booth in there and that four by four booth doesn't sound very big, four feet by four feet by it's like seven and a half feet tall. And it doesn't sound that big until you put it in the room with a desk. And I'm talking about kind of doing some filming for DIY narrator a little bit. And I'm like, I... I just got to do all of it uh, sitting at my desk. I can't do basically anything else because there's no room. And I yep. built my desk kind of large. I built it on a, one of those sit stand frames. Yep. So it's like six and a half feet long. It's pretty big and it's about four feet deep. So I can put studio monitors on it. Yeah. It just takes up, <laughs> it takes up more space than the booth actually. Yeah. And that makes filming a challenge when you've got mm -hmm. that kind of a layout. Yeah. So what kind of things have you done so far apart from the green screen? I know. And you sent me a picture yesterday of some acoustic panels that you've got. Yeah. So I went on Amazon and bought some really cheap uh, one square foot, one inch thick foam panels. Mm -hmm. Put them on my wall. I've got a six by six grid um, on my biggest blank wall that I've got in my room. And it's not doing a great job, but you know, it helps to fuck some of the sound. I have the panels in an alternating pattern, so they're not all reflecting the same way. Yeah. Beyond that, I haven't really done a heck of a lot of treatment in my space. There's still two other walls and a window to try and figure out. Yeah, and those are going to be relative to your microphone. They're behind you, basically, when you're standing at the mic, right? So my 6x6 grid is behind me. Um, the window is going to be behind the microphone, so I'll be facing my window. Yeah, so you're going to have reflections right off the window. Yep. Which is why I put the huge grid right behind me to try and deaden that reflection. So just so everyone knows, when we talk reflections, we're talking about sound reflections because sound travels through the air, obviously, and it hits the wall and it bounces off. And if you think of sound as going out kind of like when you drop a pebble into the water, it ripples out in a circle. And then when it hits those walls, it just starts coming back. And the first things that come back are called early reflections. And then... As the sound waves kind of bounce around the room, they accumulate in different parts of the room. And so have you thought about at all doing some work in the corners of your room? It's more important when you're mixing music and stuff because you get bass buildup in the corners, but you have a little bit of bass to your voice. So you could definitely benefit from adding a little bit of 
bass trapping or work in the corners. About that though, like if I wanted to do bass trapping, I have bookcases tucked into my corners. Yeah. So will I just put it above the bookcase or do I have to worry about my bookcase in some way? It kind of depends on the corners. The, the nice thing about bookcases, they'll obviously create a spot for reflections and you can even, you have books in them, right? Some of them do. <laughs> yeah. Some of them hold my other equipment. pillows in there. If you shove some <laughs> pillows in there, you might, they might function a little bit as uh, like a sound absorber, which wouldn't hurt, but mm-hmm. you put some books in there, you might not have to worry about sound building up and echoing inside of that because they kind of will act like a little echo chamber too. And then you might get like a weird hollow sound in your recording. Yeah. It might just be the weird echoey reflections within the books, bookcase itself, and then coming back out. So that's mm-hmm. something to worry about. But... I'm definitely no expert in bass traps, but I think the places you have to worry about the most are the upper corners of your room. Okay. And not so much the bookcases. When I built an early version of my studio, I had some panels that were up at an angle in the top corners of the room, and they seemed to help. I never really liked the sound of that studio setup, but they did seem to help keep some of the echo down when I added those. That's a good idea. Yeah, I can always add some bass traps to the top corners. Uh, Neil and I were talking a little bit yesterday about this. There was a software program on the web. And if anyone knows what it is, I can't remember what it is. You punch in the dimensions of your room and it would show you where all the reflections would build up in your room. And it was really nice because I could see, oh, here in the back corner, it's bright red. So I'm going to need to put a bass trap up there. Or So typically a bass trap is like a triangular piece of dense foam, maybe six inches thick and it goes in the corner and it prevents the bass from accumulating because the bass frequencies like to bounce around in the corner then they accumulate and then you get kind of heavier bassy sounds in the echo and so these guys knock that down and prevent the sound from bouncing around and so one thing you can do is use like a four inch piece of foam and you put it at an angle with about four inches, four to six inches of air behind it. So it's at an angle, not quite pushed up against the corner. And that air actually helps too, because it'll travel through the foam. It slows down a little bit, bounces around behind the foam, and then it slows back down as it comes through. So it doesn't quite have the same energy coming out. Probably not as effective as a big dense bass trap, but it might be. It's definitely cheaper because bass traps aren't exactly cheap. No, they're not usually. You just mentioned it's kind of a DIY project. Are there other ways of managing sound in your room that are affordable and don't take too much effort to put together? That's kind of the thing you run into, that constant continuum of affordability and quick and value and effectiveness. And I have tried those one-inch foam things from Amazon right now in my booth. They're actually on my ceiling, and they seem to knock down the echo that I get from the ceiling. But around the outside of my wall, I use the four inch thick Roxel. That stuff is fairly affordable. I still have some in the garage. And I think I bought two dozen of them for, I bet it was less than 60 bucks. Two dozen 16 inch wide, four inch thick bats of insulation that work really well. So my whole booth is treated with those. And those are fairly affordable, but you have to do something with them. Roxel's a little better than fiberglass insulation because fiberglass is obviously very bad for your lungs, but this rock wool stuff is not as, as damaging or dangerous. So I just have it covered with a little bit of fabric. As far as the easiest and quickest and cheapest thing I've ever done was the PVC booth where you have some PVC pipes and some elbow joints, you pop them all together and you hang moving blankets from it. That's probably faster than actually building panels, but they're definitely not 
easily collapsible and openable like your fancy green screen. <laughs> True enough. What about taking care of a window, though? Like the things we talked about work great for walls, but what about windows and closet doors where you can't really block them permanently like that? Closet doors are really tough. If there's the sliding ones, are they two that slide together as opposed to a door that swings open? Yeah, there are two uh, sliding doors on a track. Yeah, so that's what I've got in this room too. And treating those were tough for me. What I ended up doing was putting a couple of command hooks above them. And then when I built those panels that I that I showed you from uh, Booth Junkie, I'll put a link in the show notes for those ones so people can check those out. But they're, they're panels wrapped in fabric with wire running through them. And so I could take them down, get into the closet, and then hang them back up on that command hook, and they hung over the top of the closet. And those seem to work fairly well. Okay. Because you need to move those doors around, you can't go sticking stuff to them because they need to slide within, what is that, three or four millimeters of each other? Like, they're really close together. As far as windows go, they make plugs. They're built custom to the window, and you kind of plug it in there. But you might benefit from a similar situation as the closet door thing that I just described by having a semi-permanent solution, right? You can just hang up because you don't want to cover the window forever. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you spend any time in a basement or something. <laughs> Are you on a second floor? Are you down in a basement? I'm actually up in the second floor, so I have a nice one, uh, view out my window. Yeah, so you don't want to cover that. I'm like in a half-buried basement. We have like a split entry. Like It's not really a daylight basement, but it's half-buried, so I have a full window yeah. in all of our basement rooms, which is nice. But I lose the sound-deadening qualities of being in a basement which is about as good as it gets for soundproofing from the outside in a house. Yeah, speaking of, how do you deal with uh, noise bleeding in from you know other parts of the house into your space? Because uh, with me being upstairs, I've got the laundry room right next to me, so I have to you know put a hiatus on laundry cycles when I'm yeah. trying to actually do recording, but life still happens, right? Yeah, and without building a booth, you are very much at the mercy of the other sounds in your house. Because yeah, I know you have kids and the laundry. Because I've got a laundry room just down the road, just down the road, just down the hall from me too. There's not a lot you can do apart from stuff that could have been done during construction, like sound deadening insulation in the walls and the floor, and heavier door. But those are not simple DIY things. So one thing you can do if you have at least a laundry room with washer and dryer that are maybe of a consistent sound is noise reduction in Audacity or Reaper or whatever DAW you're using. The noise reduction, if the sound is very consistent, it'll reduce that noise very well. Mm -hmm. But you're kind of at the mercy of the noise because there's not a lot. Even treating your walls, treating your space on the inside is not going to do a lot to keep sound out from the outside. It's going to be more effective for knocking down the echo in the room. That makes sense. Yeah. Would um, the rock wall over the door help though a little bit? Like in my house, of course, I have hollow core doors. So mm -hmm. sound travels through that like paper. If I yes, had rock wall on the other side, would that at least help take some of the sound down? It would. So anytime you want to talk about preventing sound from traveling through material or into a space, your friend is always density. For our listeners, as sounds traveling through the air, it has to vibrate the particles in the air. Let's talk about that door. One side of the door 
the air within the door, the other side of the door, and then the air on the other side. So anything you can do to add density to a wall or to a door or anything will help reduce the sound transfer through. But whether or not you can do it enough is the question. The other thing to think about with a door too is you have the gap around the edge. And anytime you can get air through is when you'll have sound traveling through too. I don't know how tight your door closes into the frame. At a hardware store, you can pick up some closed cell foam that is used mainly for weatherproofing windows. Mm. And yeah, you the can put that around the inside. Yeah, just some weather stripping stuff. And it's got like single sticky tape on one side. You peel that off, stick it around the inside. And that's actually, I've got two layers of that on my booth door, which seems to be pretty well considering how terribly done my the door to my booth is. If anyone doesn't know, I, I built my booth myself, basically two by four stud walls and three quarter inch MDF around the outside. It's basically a tiny room. It's built just like a room in a house. But the door <laughs> is another story because I didn't know what I was doing. So I took a chunk of the MDF that I cut out to frame the door up. And then I put hinges and a handle on that and just I've got a panel hanging from it. So it doesn't really close really tightly. So those help it close a little tightly, more tightly. And even like 20 minutes into this, I'm starting to get sweaty in here because there's not a lot of air and it gets warm really fast. So I'm kind of curious, you know, I'm a bit further ahead with developing my space how would you coach a brand new person who needs to start doing some voiceover on evaluating their space, putting together a plan and trying to come up with something that's affordable, especially if you know they're a freelance instructional designer working from a home office and they just need something that isn't going to break their own budgets? The first place I always go is that PVC booth with the moving blankets because that thing, I recorded a few national commercials from a PVC booth with moving blankets. It sounds so good. It's, it blows your mind. It doesn't keep sound out from the outside very well, but it sounds very good. Now, as far as recording voice goes, one thing I've been playing with lately, I'm getting really close to being, a, this is my main recommendation, is a dynamic microphone. Because a dynamic microphone actually is not nearly as sensitive as what you'll typically buy on the market. Like a lot of people out there have the blue yetis or the blue snowballs or any of those well-marketed mics that everyone talks about because they're ubiquitous at this point but those are all condenser mics and those condenser mics are very very sensitive to the sound around them they're really sensitive to your voice and they pick up a lot of warmth and a lot of the great tonality in voice but it doesn't quite reject sound from the outside as well as the dynamic mics do there's some good dynamic mics out there that are actually really cheap. I picked up a Samson Q2U and that thing outside of my booth, I've got it mounted to my desk for calls and stuff like that. And that thing does really, really well at knocking down the echo in the room and knocking down the background noise. Q2U is one and then Audio-Technica ATR, is it 2100? ATR 2100 USB, I want to say. Mm, yeah, I know that one. The dynamic mics, they come out a little quieter. They don't quite have all the warmth and tonality. But for the instructional designer that's working from home and can't put a lot of money, time, or space into their setup, that's going to get them a lot of the way there. And you don't need a lot of those things in e-learning. You're not getting like the emotional close-up read that you get with like commercial copy or like the movie trailer voice that you hear sometimes. Like those aren't there in e-learning. You just need to sound like a human. Yeah. And those mics make you sound like a pretty decent sounding human. 
for not a lot of money. I think the Samson, the microphone alone is like 50 or 60 bucks. And I think the ATR 2100, I think it's less than a hundred bucks. I think it's like 70. That's pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It's not bad. And then as far as actual room treatments go, the first places you should treat are like you did directly behind you and directly in front of you relative to where you're standing in front of the mic and then side to side perpendicular to the microphone's pickup line. That's where the first reflections are going to go. And like we talked, the bass traps are kind of like next level stuff, especially for someone who maybe doesn't have as many bass tonalities in their voice. They probably don't have to worry so much about the bass traps. Yeah, for sure. What kind of furniture do you have in your room too? Because we before the call, we were talking a little bit about furniture and yeah. uh, bookcases we've covered. But do you have anything else in there apart from like desk and a chair? No, it's, that's pretty much it. I have three bookcases. Two are actually just open frame. So the sound can kind of go in and out really easily and not really hit a lot of um, compounding echo. And then I have a glass fronted bookcase as well. So that's a bit of a hard surface. Yeah, that one's going to be very bouncy. Yeah. Very bouncy for sound. For some of the, like, the regular like wooden bookcases, not the open frame ones, but the ones with the back, you might get some sound diffusion out of them too. Because we yeah. didn't really talk about diffusion either. So we talked about knocking down reflections. The thing about having furniture and stuff in the room is it not only does it knock down reflections, but it also blows up the sound wave a little bit and prevents, prevents it from being as strong and as easily reflected. And that's called diffusion. And so if you add a bookshelf with some books in it, those books all have uneven surfaces, uneven surfaces. Some of them are deeper into the bookshelf than others. And it acts kind of like a diffuser a little bit. That's the benefit of having some extra furniture in your room too. Like if you got a big squishy couch or something you can put in the side wall, that would never hurt. Uh, is it carpeted? Your room? Yeah, it is carpeted. Okay. So, so that's that helps. Good. Yeah, that does help. So you don't get that double reflection from the floor and ceiling. Yeah. But ceilings, we haven't really talked about either. That's in an open space. That's one of the hardest places to treat. Hmm. If you can like dangle a moving blanket from the ceiling, I don't know how you'd manage that. Because they oh. could get kind of heavy. You mentioned that you've got those cheap one-inch foam panels on the ceiling of your booth. Would that work for a whole room? It might if you had enough of them. The issue with them too, like if I like, squeeze mine, they're very, they're just not dense at like the lower price point. I, I think I got two dozen of these for less than 50 bucks. Yeah. And that's probably a red flag. <laughs> when it comes, when you go and look at like Oralex, you're looking at... I bet 20 bucks a panel, 20 bucks for a square foot or something. Yeah. So you're, I mean, they're, they're a lot more expensive, but when you get it side by side, you'll notice the difference. Like they're, they're heavier, they're denser. They don't feel as cheap. Like these feel like when I just flick them, they're very soft and they do work well in here. There's not a lot of reflections, like going back up into the ceiling. It's an interesting issue to try and deal with. And also then how do you mount it to your ceiling? You don't want to, do yeah. a heck of a lot of damage to your space. No, you definitely don't. And the heavier the panels get, like you can go out and buy a, what's called a cloud. And that's what I was, I was trying to build one one time out of one by four MDF, built a one by four MDF frame and put some four inch Roxel in there. It was two panels wide. And so it ended up being like 34 inches wide and it ended up weighing like 90 pounds. Oh gosh. It was a bad, and so I'm like, I'm not hanging this from my ceiling. I think I've got metal studs running in my ceiling. And so I didn't, I can't get 
a screw into a stud in the ceiling. And so, yeah, you just end up potentially tearing up your ceiling. You rip a big hole in it if you don't hang it correctly. In my booth, I've got these hung up with that spray-on adhesive from, oh, yeah. you might not want to put that on a painted surface like a, like a ceiling. One thing I did to hang these in the studio space, because I did have some of these hanging up too, and when I had an open studio, those little T pins. Okay. Yeah, and they just put a tiny hole in the wall. It's hardly noticeable. Yeah. So that's something to think about. I ended up using the um, the picture hanging 3M command strips, the ones with the little Velcro oh, yeah. kind of interface. Yep. So I have two of those on each of my panels. Yeah, those would probably work great too, because that... Unlike the command hooks, which you couldn't use on a on a surface that's uh, parallel to the ground above you, yeah. those you'll actually be able to stick flat against the ceiling. So that's not a bad idea. All right, Neil. So we talked a lot about the different things we can do in a space, but you sent me some links yesterday and we were talking about uh, that software that I can't remember the name of earlier. You found a little app called Impulso. It looks like it's for iPhones. I don't know if it's for Android fans out there, myself included. Yeah. It emits a noise, right, from the app. Yep. And then measures the reflections in the room using the microphone on the phone. Yeah, I'm going to give that a shot. They have two different ways of using it. One is just using the speakers and the microphone built into your iPhone. And then they have another setup where you plug into your monitors. Like if you have monitors in your space that you can hook up to your phone, they actually talk about using that plus a little microphone, like a omnidirectional lav mic, basically plugged into the headset jack on the iPhone to get even better accuracy. That makes sense because I was questioning whether or not the microphone and the speaker on the phone would be enough to actually measure the reflections. You can hear when you record into a mic whether or not it's echoey in the room to get a really specific idea of which frequencies you need to attack. That's probably not going to be possible. So it's nice to know that you can use your studio monitors and a little mic. Yeah, we'll put a note or note, a link to that in the show notes. Imposo. I am, it's I-M-P-U-L-S-O. Yeah, it looks to be free on the iPhone app store. Yeah, I wonder if the company that puts it out sells acoustic treatments because I know Oralex and a couple other companies that sell acoustic treatments will take a recording in your studio. They'll take a listen to it and they'll give you a an idea of what you need to do in your space too. And a lot of those are free because obviously they're trying to lead into selling sound treatments, which sound treatments can be very expensive, but for the right people, it's the right deal. Like if you're putting a studio or if you're like you are working from home, having a good sound makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is the sound on your videos. Where are you going to be recording your videos relative to your voiceover setup? Same room, but different direction. So I have my room set up so that my recording space is very shallow. The distance from my window to my back wall where my sound treatment is currently is the shortest distance there is. Um, With a video, I need to go lengthwise through my rectangular room so I can get enough room for my camera, myself, and then my green screen backdrop. You don't want to be too tight. Exactly. And so behind the camera is going to be a very irregular surface closet and then like a little entryway out to my door, kind of a little dog leg shape there. And then behind me is all of my desk and my bookcases and stuff. So I have kind of that breakup behind me. And then with the green screen, I do have some reflective deadening. That's why I was asking about the closet earlier, because that's going to be right by the camera, basically. I know you've got a shotgun mic, putting that on a boom above 
yourself, right? Yeah. So I picked up a mic stand with a boom arm and I'm going to basically have it just above myself and I'll cut it out in post-production for the video. So I'll try to keep it pretty close. The benefit of that is that it's going to keep that mic further away from the wall behind it. On the other side, it'll be closer to the wall behind me. The nice thing about shotguns, though, is they're super sensitive to just a small area in front of them. It's a it's a cone coming out and it's pretty tight. Yeah. And so it rejects sound from the side really effectively, which is why they're very popular for like movies and sitcoms and stuff. They do a great job of just picking up what they're pointed at. The downside of that, though, is that the direct backside of the shotgun mic is also not as sensitive as the front, but fairly sensitive. And be more, a little bit more concerned with whatever's behind it as opposed to the side. So if you set it kind of at an angle, as opposed to like straight up and down, so definitely don't put it straight up and down like above you. Yeah, then you'll catch the reflections from the ceiling. You, exactly. So if you put it at a bit of an angle... You'll still catch some reflections from the ceiling, but they won't be as direct. If that's the case, then wouldn't it work to like, I don't know, get some command strips from the ceiling and hang a moving blanket so that it's out of shot and directly behind the microphone? Yeah, I think it would. It would. And that would definitely help if you had one, say, above your desk where you're recording VO too, because it would it would knock down those reflections from the ceiling. That was the biggest one for me trying to overcome when I had the open studio was the ceiling like a moving blanket with some grommets and maybe some wire anything you could pull a little bit tight and hang but easily take down because it's weird to have something hanging above your head all day yeah maybe it's just me but yeah that's a that's a big one because I know when I've recorded in hotel rooms before it goes a long way to getting a like a big comforter over the top of you more so than hanging stuff behind you or around you getting something up above it says hotel room ceilings are usually so short that they reflect like straight back down really quick. If you want to hear an example of that, check out Josh's podcast from his hotel room in Vegas. Vegas, yeah. So that was at Treasure Island. Yeah. And I recorded that on a shotgun mic and I recorded the first half of the podcast just out in the open with a little desk stand and no sound treatment around me at all. And then the second half of the podcast, I went into the little closet and I stuffed some pillows in there. And I put the stand in there. One thing I didn't do is I had the stand sitting on top of a shelf that was above the little mini fridge. And I didn't unplug the fridge. I should have unplugged the fridge. Would have made a difference. Yeah, for sure. I'm going back to DevLearn. I'm going to be staying at the Wynn for a couple of nights. And it'll, uh, I think it's nicer than the Treasure Island. So we'll see what they've got there. So I plan on doing another one to compare hotel rooms. (laughs) Make my, uh, my voiceover in Vegas hotel room recommendations based on two places. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you planning on... Oh, no, we talked about this. You're not planning on going to DevLearn. You've got yeah, other I, other travels. I got other travels, and I hit up uh, Realities 360 in San Jose the other month. So I'm tapped out for uh, conferences this year. Yeah, how was Realities, though? Was it cool? Oh, it was cool. Talking about how to use VR and AR and instructional design is an interesting field. Because that's also eLearning Guild, isn't it? It is eLearning Guild. Yeah, it's one of their newer conferences. It's only been around for like three years. It doesn't have the following that DevLearn does or Learning Solutions was pretty big Yep. when I went down there. But DevLearn was insane. But like you mentioned, AR and VR in learning is super interesting. Because I don't do it every day, I have a hard time really getting it and figuring out like how it's going to fit. 
but I can see some solutions like being able to see offsite, see someone on a assembly line or something through their AR glasses and being able to go, okay, I can see what's going on here. This is your problem. This is how we need to fix it without having to pull a guy off the line, without having to bring someone else in. And it kind of becomes like an on the job training yep. and problem solving setup. So one of the mantras from the session was talking about basically, is it dangerous? Is it hard to repeat or replicate in the real world? Is it time sensitive? If you can say yes to those, then chances are VR or AR will work really well. A great example is working in a grocery store, working in a deli. So you know how those big deli slicers for doing oh, yeah. up your sandwich meat, you got to take those apart and clean them. And if you don't grab the right place, you can slice your hand open. Yeah. They're meant to cut meat. And if you don't clean it properly, you end up getting all sorts of bacteria growing on your equipment and you're going to start poisoning people with listeria, salmonella, and other nasty things. VR could actually help you learn how to break stuff apart. Yeah, without having to supply a classroom of 10 people with a with a device or something too, which is- Yeah, you don't need 10 deli slicers for a group of 10, or you don't have to uh, interrupt work on the floor. Like if you've got a deli mm -hmm. slicer station with five people trying to work deli slicers, you don't have to take one offline so people can practice. And you got nine people standing around doing nothing and one person practicing. Yeah, and watching someone else do it is not, not super effective learning all no, the time. No, not at all. I was talking to a guy on LinkedIn. I wish I remembered his name. He uses VR in chemistry education. Huh. Basically getting people in the lab when they either can't be in a lab or when they haven't had the experience to be in there safely and doing stuff. And then once they get to a certain point, then they can get in the actual lab. It's interesting to see where it's fitting in. We have to do an episode on voiceover for VR because it's a different... Oh, totally different thing. It's, it's a totally different thing because you're, you're actually inside someone's head. Yeah. In a lot of cases. And so that involves talking to them like you're inside their head and not talking to them like you're standing next to them. Unless you are like pretending to be the guy standing next to them. Or yeah, I mean, if, if you're voicing over another VR character who's in a field of vision, then you can do it like that and kind of do that role play where you're standing beside somebody. And, but then it's a totally different mindset from normal VO because in normal voiceover, you kind of have the same position as a teacher. You're standing, you're presenting, you're giving information. Yep. But when you're in virtual reality, it's more conversational. It's more yeah. got that kind of tonality to it. So it changes how you write your scripts. It changes how you do your voiceover, your tone, all that stuff. Exactly. And a, a lot of cases, you can argue that regular e-learning should sound more conversational, but there's always going to be that feeling that you carry to it where you're you're still just regurgitating information to someone yeah. and it's not that you're like side by side with them even though like i think it was just the last episode or the episode before where i was talking about putting yourself in a position mentally where you think you feel you are side by side with someone and walking through something yeah that was the last episode was it um of course you. <laughs> of course you know which episode it was and i don't that's funny yeah, it was yeah, the lead-ins. That was the lead-ins because yeah. uh, you and I were talking about that in our other session. Yeah, so yeah, it was the lead-ins and the lead-in came from that little coaching session we did. It's all about just getting you in the frame of mind of talking to someone. But in VR, when they're visually seeing you next to them too, that's going to completely change the experience for the learner. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you sound like a guy dictating to him rather than a guy 
that's like guiding them through something, it's going to throw the whole immersive feeling of VR out the window. And you don't want to, you don't want to do that. You almost have to do the voiceover while watching what the character is doing. It's kind of like actually doing, being a voice talent for an animated film. Yeah. Do an ADR for it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, if you're doing one set of, you know, body language and hand motions behind the microphone, that totally doesn't match what the character is doing in the VR. Your delivery is going to be wholly out of touch with the rest of what the learner is experiencing. Very true. That is very true. It's funny you bring that up because there's when they do animation, they will a lot of times record the talent in studio doing the animation, and that will influence how the character acts and mm-hmm. the, the gestures they have and the facial features and stuff, just to make sure that all the stuff that the animated character does is true to what someone would do if they were saying the thing they're saying. Yeah, for sure. So it almost makes sense to go both directions, but now we're talking like a huge production too. And I think VR is not quite scaled to the point where anyone can just afford to do that in a regular learning session because it's not cheap on that level anyway. Yeah, most of the VR that I saw at the conference was very much, you know, the people were standing there with their hands by their sides. You know, very simple animations because they didn't want to put a ton of money into that part because mm-hmm. everything else is already so expensive. Yeah, yeah, because you've got the equipment costs and just getting someone to build something basic can't be cheap. No. And then adding all those little fine touches, that'll come with scale, though. The more that's done, just like the way we've seen animated features improve over the last, well, was since Toy Story basically the first Toy Story. Yeah, since like 95. The more you create assets for 3D, the cheaper they become. And then the more you can start focusing on other stuff. Yeah, especially because you can start reusing your assets too. Exactly. You don't have to worry about rebuilding a walk cycle every single time you need someone to walk across the room. Yeah. Well, man, I feel like we went way off topic. (laughs) We did. But uh, who knows? Maybe I'll split this into two. I think it's time we wrap it up. Any other questions about what we've, I mean, we, we covered a lot of things. It ended up being a Neil interviews Josh podcast, which is cool. I don't mind that. No, it's a really interesting format. I think it'll be a nice variation on the podcast styles that you've got. And I appreciate you taking the time to jump on and talk about your new setup and the, the hurdles you're trying to overcome and VR, which <laughs> was, <laughs> was not expected, but that's cool. Thanks for being on. Thank you. And so there you have it. My first two-person podcast episode for DIY Narrator, which is interesting because I never thought I'd ever do like an interview. Although this never really was an interview, it was more of a conversation about what Neil's plans were and what we could do about his space. Check out the show notes to get in touch with Neil. I'll put a link to his LinkedIn profile there, as well as some links to the various things we talked about during the episode, like the Impulso app, the two dynamic mics, the Samson Q2U and the one from Audio-Technica, and some of the other things we talked about, just so you can actually see what it was we were discussing. I also have an upcoming episode talking about the different mic types, and I'm using them in and outside of the booth, so you can hear what they sound like in a treated space, which is where this mic is right now, and then what it sounds like in a not-so-well-treated space. So be on the lookout for that episode. It's going to be really cool. For now, check out the show notes for this episode over at DIYNarrator.com. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.